0: Hello everyone and welcome to Energy Explored. This podcast covers the challenges of achieving a carbon neutral global economy, cutting emissions of gases and pollutants, and setting up new energy systems. Join Reed Smith lawyers and guest speakers as they shed light on the most important trends in emissions control and new fuels. Tune in as we follow the ever-evolving journey through the transition of energy.
1: Hi everyone, and welcome back to Energy Explored. I'm Terry Prempeh, an associate in the Energy and Natural Resources Group, and today I'm joined by Adam Headley and James Atkin, who are both partners in the team. Today we're talking about the scaling up of the carbon neutral fossil fuel market, but before we get into that, I will let both of my colleagues briefly introduce themselves. Adam, would you like to go first?
2: Thanks, Terry. Hi, I'm Adam Headley, a partner in our Energy and Natural Resources Group. I lead our UK environmental practice and co-lead our global carbon practice.
0: Excellent. I'm James Atkin, again, a partner in the London E&R office. My practice is focused on upstream oil and gas project development. So I come at this from a slightly different angle in terms of supporting the oil and gas industry moving forward.
1: Jumping straight into our topic for today, when we talk about the current shift towards renewables and other forms of low carbon energy production, fossil fuel producers and market actors are increasingly looking to interim green solutions. And of those interim solutions, it's difficult to look past carbon neutral fossil fuels. And I guess my first question is, what
2: does carbon neutral fossil fuel mean? Yeah, I'll take this one, Terry. And well, I guess the first thing to say is carbon neutral fossil fuels sounds like a bit of a contradiction in terms, but it's an area of the market which has developed over the last few years basically what we're talking about is the traditional fossil fuels market, which has developed a product which involves assessing the, the whole carbon footprint of that fossil fuel. So across its full life cycle of production, transportation through to use, and then taking measures to eliminate or, or net off those carbon emissions. And, and that can be done in one of two ways or potentially a combination of ways. So firstly, you can do that through reducing the carbon emissions at source, more efficient production techniques or through better transportation techniques. And then secondly, you can look to offset those carbon emissions. So by acquiring carbon offsets, which have nothing to do with the fossil fuel itself, but which are attached to that fuel to create the carbon neutral product. And of course, you know, one thing that we have to acknowledge with fossil fuels is they can never become carbon neutral completely at source because there will always be a carbon footprint associated with their use, so we're typically going to see at least some element of carbon offsetting in this market and, and indeed have seen that. Thanks, Adam. I think just
1: based on what you've said, I guess one of the key questions when we we talk about this is is building that credibility and when this market is attempting to scale up you know through the adherence to industry driven voluntary initiatives, or for example market regulation and is that the right time and those sorts of questions and i guess james my question for you is what trends are you currently seeing in terms of carbon neutral fossil fuel transactions
0: well yes i think first and foremost what we're seeing in the market is a far greater awareness of the the need for supporting the energy transition and moving to a carbon neutral economy and positioning Fossil fuels, and in particular, LNG and gas in support of that transition process. And so, as an industry, the trend that we're seeing most is trying to get a handle on the scale of the issue which needs to be addressed in terms of getting a better understanding of the GHG footprint. So, the greenhouse gas footprint associated with exactly as Adam's just described the production, the transportation, and the use of. Uh, the fossil fuels and so the key trend we're seeing in the market at the moment is a focus on measurement and certification of what the actual emissions are and then the reporting processes for those emissions followed by a verification process to make sure that everyone is performing to the same standards and using the same benchmarks when they're saying how much emission how many emissions they're producing as part of their particular fossil fuel In turn, that is leading to people to focus on how to reduce those emissions. And again, as Adam described, that can be through more efficient production techniques to reduce methane lost during the production of of gas or LNG, looking at carbon capture and storage options. And also, again, in the context, for example, of LNG, looking to have electric drives rather than gas turbines to power the particular facility. So it's a combination of different things where people are looking to, first of all, get an assessment and understanding of the footprint associated with their production, before then looking at ways of reducing and, and managing that footprint.
1: Thank you. That's a very in-depth response. I guess those are the sorts of things we're seeing in terms of clients building up their, their capabilities. And as they do that, how can you know the market participants and actors avoid claims of, greenwashing and those sorts of accusations that often appear in the media?
0: Well, I think you know, from my perspective, the oil and gas industry perspective, this is a, a key argument opportunity to position fossil fuels, and particularly gas and LNG, as a key component of the energy transition, supporting the move to wider use of renewables, hydrogen, etc. And To do that, you you need to have consistency and transparency and to avoid claims of greenwashing, to have a standard to which everyone is operating and to minimise or mitigate the risk that any particular trade can be challenged for being less than robust in in its green credentials. And so to have that transparency across the market, I think, is the first thing that, that the industry needs to focus on. I don't know, Adam, do you have other thoughts?
2: I think that's that's right, James. And and I guess one other thing is to to really understand can we describe that label as meaning a particular single thing and how far across the life cycle of the product are we looking at and, and exactly how are we measuring that? So really all the themes that you've just mentioned, yeah. So do you think that voluntary initiatives like the Gignal framework, for
1: example, will they be enough to gain credibility and trust in this Fairly novel market.
0: Well, Gignol is obviously focused on LNG and, and trying to create a benchmark to which all market participants can set the standards to which they want to achieve. And so, Gignol doesn't of itself impose a particular compliance standard. It gives options for LNG producers, sellers, as to how you know they want to market the, the green credentials of a particular cargo. You know, are they just measuring the carbon footprints associated with production? Are they coupling that footprint with offsets? Or are they in turn trying to reduce the carbon footprint associated with the production of the LNG? So they give lots of flexibility to producers and and sellers of LNG as to how they are trying to market and, and sell the product. And I think that's important, at least at this stage in the development of GHG neutral, carbon neutral fossil fuels, in that not everybody, both on the buy side and the sell side, has the same market drivers to achieve GHG neutrality. And there needs to be some flexibility to allow market players of different sizes and different capabilities and different resources to move and to make the transition to a less carbon intensive form of production. And so at least at this stage in the market, it seems like having a voluntary standard, but which is creating a clear uniform benchmark is a sensible starting point.
1: I would say something which just off the back of that, that I've noticed, especially this year with rising energy costs is when there seem to be concerns about energy supply or energy security, the green initiatives appear to be the first to, to be sacrificed, how do you think that the market can ensure a continued and consistent commitment
2: to these carbon neutral initiatives? So Terry, I I think, I think you've hit the nail on the head there that you know we, we do see at the moment the discussion is all about energy security. Right, rightly so. And when the carbon neutral fossil fuels market really started to develop a few years ago, we were in quite a different world at that point and, and what was leading the discussion was about carbon neutrality and net zero. So we're at an interesting juncture in the market and it's right to ask those questions about how do we maintain those objectives? And one, you know, go to the heart of our conversation right now. One way you can potentially do that is through increased regulation to require this either at government level or corporate and private actor level. Uh, and, you know, we, that's a theme throughout this discussion today. But I think one other way to look at it is when we're looking at this specifically in relation to carbon neutral fossil fuels, is how do they interact with government regulations? So not necessarily being regulated themselves, but how do they interact with other schemes that currently or may in future exist, that they overlap with. And so I think one thing that will secure a greater demand for carbon neutral fossil fuels in the EU, for example, will be how it interacts with existing schemes which require carbon reduction in transport fuels or in fuels going into the grid and and whether there is any incentive there for corporates to do this above and beyond ESG aims. Because if they can get that regulatory recognition in trading with these products or producing these products, there's an obvious path towards making it more, making more demand in the market. And I think that's why we're probably seeing slightly greater demand right now in Asia for carbon neutral products of this nature, because there aren't necessarily the same degree of regulatory schemes, which means there's less scope for overlap.
0: I think the only thing that I would mention in this context area is. Adam and I, with a couple of colleagues, drafted an article for the oil and gas energy law, which was published in March, very much focused on GHG neutral LNG and essential evolution. And when that was published, I remember one of my clients reached out to me to say six months before GHG neutral LNG was the only topic in the industry that people were talking about. But obviously in March, just after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, And the consequent impact on commodity prices, people were of a different view as to the importance of GHG neutrality and carbon intensity of production of energy sources. But interestingly, over the last subsequent three or four four or five months, we've seen, again, a real focus on the importance of reducing GHG footprint for energy production and an awareness within the industry that we're looking at the long-term future use of fossil fuels to support the transition to a clean net zero economy. And in that context, producers of fossil fuels need to remain focused on reducing the footprint associated with their products and improving the overall reduction in the carbon intensity of, of fossil fuels being produced. So While there will be spikes in the market which will cause distractions and cause pressure for adhering to GHG-neutral policies, I think in the longer term, most people in the industry recognise that this is something which has to be done and has to be done on a consistent and reliable basis.
1: And so I guess carbon offsets is going to be something which is going directly alongside that transition. And I guess one of the questions I have is, is there a case for regulating the voluntary carbon market or the attributes of the carbon offsets?
2: I suppose this question follows on really from the broader debate around regulation of carbon neutral fossil fuels. So what we've really talked about so far is is the carbon neutral element of it or the label or the product itself. But actually, as, as you've said, Terry, carbon offsets are always going to be an integral part of this transitional energy product. But of course, whilst carbon neutral fossil fuels have only been around for a few years as a product, carbon offsets have been around for a great deal longer. And it's worth probably saying, you know, when we talk about the voluntary carbon market, we're not necessarily saying it's it's an unregulated market. What What we're meaning is it's a market in which all the participants are acting voluntarily, as opposed to Compliance markets like the EU ETS or the UK ETS, where people are caught by by virtue of statute and have to comply, have to reduce their emissions or require allowances to do that. And I I make that distinction because with the voluntary carbon market, in fact, the way that it developed from the get go a a little under 20 years ago was very much in in a regulated manner, in a top down regulated manner. So it was driven in the early stages by the UNFCCC's programs, which were namely the Clean Development Mechanism (CDM) and the Joint Implementation Program (JI), and there was very much a whole raft of regulation around those frameworks and the and the issuance of carbon offsets and the trading of those units um, under that scheme. And, And that's certainly how the market grew initially, but then towards 2008-2009 we saw the global financial crisis and the global recession which followed and and the bottom fell out of the the voluntary carbon market at that time and it really stayed that way for for quite a long time so it's only you know when we talk about the voluntary carbon market now in fact it's it's really only been around in this form for a few years you know a little bit longer than carbon neutral fossil fuels, but not a great deal longer, and that's when we've seen these voluntary schemes, truly voluntary schemes, which are unregulated pop up, like Vera, Gold Standard, American Carbon Registry and, and several others. And so it's in in some ways there's always going to be this dual element to the voluntary carbon market, one which is already regulated and one which isn't. And so the question is should should it all be regulated, I guess? And and the answer is certainly nuanced, but clearly, from what we see, as as there's greater confidence right now in the the unregulated part of the market, and we're seeing the development of template documentation, we're seeing industry schemes to develop principles that underpin those unregulated schemes. Then there's less of a mandate, I think, in that case to say they should be regulated because because the, cause the the unregulated part of the market is reacting to that and trying to allow it to operate without needing greater regulation and oversight. In terms of the schemes that are voluntary popping up, there's
1: been quite a lot of emphasis on high quality carbon credits. And in terms of distinguishing between a high quality carbon credit and, and a less effective carbon credit, what would you say are the things that people should look out for?
2: I think you're right to say that there has been a lot of emphasis recently on the quality of carbon credits. And, and what we've seen really is where corporates are buying up high quality carbon credits or what we would deem to be high quality carbon credits. They're making noise about it, as they as they rightly should. but But in fact, there is still a huge part of the market which is being driven by the issuance or trading of low-quality units, but of course that's the, the area of the market where le- less noise is made. So there's it's certainly still a very current topic and and a, not an easy one to to really answer. Um, but but there are, as I mentioned, there are increasing attempts to identify a set of principles which should underline a quality carbon offset. And so if I'm in the market now and I'm, I'm looking at trying to acquire a, a quality carbon offset, I'm going to look firstly at what scheme it operates under. So I mentioned before Vera and gold standard and they account for the vast majority of the voluntary carbon market as the two largest schemes, but there are a proliferation of others and a differing degrees of rigour which underpin those systems and, and documentation rules, standards which underpin them. I think beyond that, it's also important to look at the vintage of the carbon offset. And by that, I mean the year in which it was generated because we've seen, as I mentioned, the carbon market's been around for some time and there's a lot of learning happened over that time. And one of the things which stymied the growth of the carbon market was this question of quality with those earlier carbon offsets generated under... CDM and under the JI. And so I would certainly be looking to acquire, you know, the the youngest, if you want to call it, the youngest vintage of carbon offset, because then we're, we know it's more likely to be of a higher quality. And then, and then beyond that, I mentioned, you know, there are a set of principles which generally are said to underpin a quality carbon offset. So things like additionality, no double counting, permanence, governance. So a, A range of different things and we could go into the detail on all of those things but i think ultimately if you're looking at a quality scheme then you can be fairly certain that those those principles will already underpin it
0: i guess adam just one question for me on that I, i know some of our clients are looking to develop their own projects which will generate credits that they can use for offsetting how much are you seeing in the marketplace where you know clients are, are developing their own portfolios of credits and also what are the challenges of, of doing that in terms of getting them verified and, and you know, appropriately recorded?
2: I think I think that's right, James. We we are seeing particularly over just, just as we've talked about energy security being a theme, another theme is security of carbon offsets. And so we've worked with a lot of larger corporate clients recently looking to secure their supply of carbon offsets. And the way to do that is to buy into their supply chain in one form or another. So that could involve developing your own project or financing somebody else developing a project and being the primary off taker of the credits through a contractual matrix. And, you know, clients who are developing their own projects looking to attract investment to to do that. And. There are a range of different models to do that. There's always going to be a degree of project risk in, in this type of activity, which is not specific to the carbon offsetting world, but there are certainly ways that you can mitigate those risks and look to minimize You know whether you're acting for the, the project developer or the off-taker, minimizing the opportunities for those risks to come to fruition. So it's, it's, we're at a very interesting stage in the market where we are seeing that, whereas a few years ago, those same clients were perhaps dipping their toe in the market a, a little bit more through spot trading and, and more kind of downstream activities.
0: Interesting.
1: And Adam, just sort of following on from that, in terms of, we've seen with the global aviation carbon offsetting scheme, which seems to be slightly further ahead, coarsier, do you think that offers a potential model for the interaction between emissions, regulations and the voluntary
2: carbon market to follow? I think it potentially does. So the CORSIA scheme is an example of a fairly recent compliance carbon market. Compliance in the sense that once countries sign up to it and several have and several more are due to in the coming years, then airlines which operate within those countries are caught by it. So they're have to measure their carbon footprint, and they have to acquire carbon offsets and surrender them to to meet that that obligation. And what's interesting about the Corsia is that the means for compliance is through the voluntary market. So, so it is a form of interaction between a compliance scheme and the voluntary market. And it, it bucks the trend slightly in the sense that other compliance schemes like the EU ETS have walked away from allowing the use of units generated in the voluntary carbon market to meet a compliance obligation. But the reason and perhaps the way that the Corsia has tried to get around that and, and allowed the voluntary market back into the compliance markets is by setting a set of eligibility criteria for carbon credits that the voluntary carbon market program providers have to prove to to them that they meet those criteria and get accredited for use in it. So what we've seen is the various voluntary carbon market programme providers responding to that requirement by producing a a carbon credit product, which is able to meet those criteria and which is effectively, you know, Corsair compliant and has that label. And then having that label means they then are recognized in the market as meeting a certain set of quality criteria and they trade at a premium then to other types of of units. So what it demonstrates, I think, is that the the voluntary, unregulated side of the market can react to the compliance markets and essentially create what is needed to to, to get credibility, to get assurance and to get independent verification without needing to be regulated directly.
1: So what are you seeing in the market right now then, in terms of buyer trends and approaches towards documenting these carbon offset transactions?
2: Well, we've already talked about this trend towards securing your carbon offset supply by buying into the supply chain, but we're we're seeing various other things as well. And perhaps what underpins it all right now is that the market is jittery, uh, as are various other markets, but in the carbon market, It's probably fair to say that there's less transparency in terms of the prices and there's certainly a a full range of products out there. So it's very difficult to identify a particular market price at any one time for carbon offsets. And so that added lack of transparency on pricing supplemented with the general market jitteriness right now means that we are seeing a lot of fluctuation in prices. But beyond that, there seems to be a clear preference right now for nature-based carbon offsets as opposed to technology-based carbon offsets. And I think part of that is down to the fact that nature-based offsets aren't just about carbon offsetting, but they also have various other potential benefits and things which go towards corporate ESG aims like biodiversity and social aims as well. So that's certainly one thing that we're seeing. Another quite interesting thing is the the further digitization of carbon offsets through creating carbon cryptocurrencies or tokens, and that is allowing broader access to the carbon market because it's allowing people to participate and invest in carbon offsets without actually owning the carbon offset itself and therefore not needing to register with the carbon offset providers and go through the various kind of checks which have to take place and and comply with the various rules that they have in place. So an interesting trend and, and one where it, which seems to be allowing more ordinary consumers to get involved in the carbon market, not just the, the corporates. And in terms of the documentation, I think I already mentioned that there are efforts afoot and, and certainly underway by various groups and stakeholder groups in the market to try and develop more standardised documentation for trading these units, much like there is already in the compliance carbon markets. So we'll definitely see that coming through over the remainder of this year and next. But for the most part, I would say it's still very much bespoke documentation, and there will always be a need and a role for bespoke documentation, because when we're looking particularly at the the primary offtake market and so selling by the developer to the first off taker or the financer, whoever that might be. It's inherently bespoke, it's inherently different at that point because you're looking at a whole range of different types of project, different types of investments and and different risks involved in that. And different countries of course as well. So it's it's very hard to try and capture all of those issues into a single template document. And I think that will continue to be the case.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, from a production and, and sale perspective of the fossil fuels themselves, we're definitely seeing a growing focus and obligation being imposed on producers to develop a GHG carbon footprint certificate for the product that they're producing. And so there's a real obligation to put in place measurements um, and, and quantifications of the carbon and greenhouse gas emissions being produced as part of the production of the product. And that then is becoming attached to the product when it's being sold and leads into everything that Adam has just described in terms of then you need to offset the GHG elements of the particular cargo. And in turn, I think we're seeing an increasing focus on how you then apply all the offsets and everything to. A particular cargo and so the optionality of that how a buyer can have the an option to exercise when it's purchasing a particular cargo to categorize it as a green a carbon neutral cargo by electing to effectively pay a premium to have offsets applied to the footprint associated with the particular cargo and so we're now i think you're seeing in in the market a growing focus exactly as Adam has described on the quality of the offsets. So if a buyer does elect to exercise the option to convert a regular cargo into a GHG neutral cargo by the application of offsets, then the quality of those offsets being applied to the particular cargo uh, and also having audit rights to make sure that the credits which are cancelled or terminated as a result have been appropriately dealt with and allocated to the particular cargo so on the product level as well there there's a quite a lot of work going on to develop the framework to, to allow this to happen
1: and i think james that's quite an interesting one because while you've got the building up of the capabilities on the product side you then also got the lobbying perspective and the public awareness and and we've seen in japan there's been an alliance formed called the Carbon Neutral LNG Buyers License, and, and they've come together to have the sole aim of promoting the product in the market. And ultimately it's a premium fuel and it's going to be more expensive. And in order for your buyers to be willing to pay a premium price, they're going to have to understand what they're paying for. So it's all well and good having a great product. But if nobody knows about it and knows about the GHG certificates and the benefits of purchasing good quality LNG, then it almost falls on deaf ears. So I think it's a full-scaled approach to solving this issue. And it's clearly not a very simple transition, but one which, as you said, everybody seems to be headed in the right direction and taking a concerted approach. So I guess in summary, and just wrapping things up, it seems to be the case that transparency and consistency is going to underpin the growth of the market. And if there is a concerted effort by all parties, there will be growth in this industry. Thank you for listening to another episode of Energy Explored. Energy Explored is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's energy and natural resources practice, please email energyexplored at readsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and reedsmith.com.